Let's open our Bibles tonight to Proverbs 21 and 22. We'll see how far we get. Uh, sometimes I'm reading the whole chapter, coming back, picking out one subject. Tonight I'm going to stop more often and highlight several verses. Of course, the Proverbs is one of the books written by Solomon, along with Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. Originally there were 3,000 Proverbs, 1,005 songs that Solomon wrote. And according to the scriptures, the wisest man who ever lived, he's writing this for his son. One of our main verses tonight is, train up a child in the way he will go, and when he's old he will not depart from it. That's going to be our scripture verse for Sunday, but I'll get sidetracked and talk a little bit about that tonight. So let's look at uh, chapter 21. The first verse, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. As we consider what's taking place right now, a lot of people, I'm sure, are taking this in, and that is the presidential debates that are happening as I'm speaking here right now. A lot of people are wondering, you know, who's going to get it? Is it going to be Trump? Is it going to be one of the other candidates as they're duking it out tonight in Southern California? But the fact of the matter is, the way I see it, a country pretty much gets the leadership that it deserves. That's the way it was in Israel anyway, when they had completely began to fall under King Ahab. He marries a gal named Jezebel, and uh, she's actually responsible for bringing in Baal worship into the land. And uh, Elijah thought he stood alone. He said, "Uh, I'm the only one. I'm the only one that will stand up and take these guys on. And, uh, of course, one of our first stops in Israel is going to Mount Carmel. It's a strong B-plus site because you can actually see um, the brook that, that Elijah would have had these 450 prophets of Baal taken down to and killed. Uh, that is still there. It's one of the most amazing views all of, of all of Israel because you can see the whole valley of where the Battle of Armageddon is going, going to take place. So we call it, we know it's on the mountains of Carmel. From there, you can see the Mediterranean. When Elijah prayed, um, uh, he said that he saw a cloud forming after he prayed, I think, seven times. He says, that's it, the Lord's going to bring rain. And prior to that, he told Ahab, You're not, it's not going to rain until I say so. And so there was this uh, period of time of three and a half years where it, it did not rain until Elijah prayed. That's what we read in James 5. It says, Elijah was no different than you. He's no different than me. But when he prayed, it did not rain for the space of three and a half years. Now that's significant because that's an almost unbelievable event that the Bible says is going to happen again in Revelation chapter 11. Um, it says it did It did not rain in the days of the prophecies of these two witnesses. How long was there a prophecy? For 1,260 days, which is exactly three and a half years, or 42 months, or times, times, and half a times. So one of the things as we go through the scriptures that I want to point out, and the reason it's important to go through the complete Bible, if you just had the New Testament or you're just doing topical studies, and you don't read the story about a, a king uh, where the Lord says, I'll, take, and I'll, I'll make the circumstances just the way I want them. 
So he allows Jezebel to come in, and people turn to their own ways, and they do their own thing. And as a result, God brought judgment. And uh, the judgment was that of no rain. And until Elijah said, now it's going to rain. So if it happened before, when we read the book of Revelation, which a lot of people won't touch with a 10-foot pole, because they say it's impossible to understand, and there's too much symbolism, well, it's not really that difficult to understand at all. The the key to the book of Revelation is chapter 1, verse 19, um, where the Lord tells John, write the things that you've seen, chapter 1, write the things that are, present tense, chapters 2 and 3, and then write the things which will be metatonta or hereafter, 4 through 19. It just breaks down into three separate groups. And the main part of it is a seven-year period of time just given to Israel. And the clock will begin after the rapture of the church, and then Israel has seven years. In the middle of that seven years, as Elijah pointed out, I'm glad he put that, that timeline chart up during his, his study. Uh, just, just laid it out, exactly the timing, seven-year period of time for Israel. And um, we're living at the end of uh, that time, what we call the church age or the, the time of God's grace. But I think it's quickly winding down. Um, it'll be interesting to see if we're still around uh, next year, who will become president of the United States. And uh, whoever it is, what we read here in the Proverbs is, is, is the Lord has his hand on the king's heart. And uh, like the river of water, he'll turn it wherever he wishes. So whoever we get and uh, whatever the Lord will let happen remains to be seen. Uh, but, but God is sovereign in Elijah's time. Uh, he thought he was the only one. Sometimes you might feel like you're the only one. And because Elijah thought he was the only one, he went from calling down fire from heaven from one day. Uh, the next day he's running from his, for his life because he's afraid of Jezebel. And he goes from a mountaintop experience of calling down fire where he crawls into a cave and said, Lord, kill me, I want to die. He was, that, he was that depressed. He says, I'm the only one that's standing up for you. And the Lord appeared to him and says, you don't know nothing, Elijah. I still have 7,000 in Israel that have not bowed their knee to me. You're not alone. So if you feel like you're all alone, you're not. There's, there's people that are staying the course out there and, and um, still holding a sound doctrine. And uh, some of you are thinking, if you take that long in verse 1, you're not even going to get through chapter 21, much less 22. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. And he's always weighing the heart. And... Um, one of the things about walking with the Lord is this conviction that we have of um, walking uprightly before him. We weigh things out. We pray things out. And the Lord is also weighing them out. We're actually told in the scripture to bring every thought that comes into our consciousness, bring it into captivity. Check it out. Why? Because every thought that comes into your head isn't necessarily from you. It's one of three sources. Um, Jesus said, my sheep, hear my voice. 
And they come. There's one voice. Um, we're clearly told that uh, the enemy has ability to um, uh, condemn us. He's a slander. He has the ability to tempt us, as he did Jesus. And uh, we have those thoughts coming through our head. And then we have a free will. And with our free will, we can make our own thoughts and we can make our own decisions. So we have a big, important decision to make. And or, or something strikes us and we feel like we're supposed to be involved with it or not be involved with it. What do you do? Well, you bring that thought under the captivity of God's word, and you allow this to be the sifter. And this is what you run it through. And in order to have the sifter working, the sifter also has to be downloaded into here. So anyone want to say amen? The significance and the importance of knowing this book um, is absolutely essential if you're going to bring every thought into captivity and then sift it through the scriptures to say, Lord, what does your word have to say about what I'm thinking about right now? And once you do that, um, then you will have direction. You'll either have peace, that's from the Lord. Or you'll go, oh, oh, look out, that's a temptation. I'm gonna stay away from that one. God's word's clear about that. And then exercising our own free will, well, we should be doing that based upon Acknowledging the Lord in all your ways and what? He'll direct your path. So we're always talking to the Lord. The Bible says we're to pray without ceasing. And so we're, we're, we're in the state of mind where we're always talking to the Lord. Well, what about this? And what should I do here? And um, so every man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. This, of course, reminds me of Saul where Saul was called by the Lord to um, bring judgment against Agag. And um, the Amalekites said, wipe them out, every single one of them. A lot of people wrestle with scriptures like that. But let me give you a modern day uh, comparison. What if the Lord... um, One of the platform questions that's going to be asked tonight, I was listening a little bit, of the debate between four of uh, the Republicans. I think it was Lindsey Graham, the one with the Southern accent, he said, if I'm elected president of the United States, I will take care of ISIS. I'll take care of the problem that's there. Now, I don't think there's too many Americans today that would have a problem with um, a president who got up and and said, I'm gonna kill every member of ISIS. Most people would stand up and say amen and say, yeah, because they're that brutal. They kill men, women, and children all in the name of Islam. And there's, I don't think there's very many Americans that wouldn't stand up and say, take every one of them out. They have one goal, one agenda. And if you don't submit, then they'll cut your head off. So when the Amalekites were around, I'm likening them unto ISIS. So when the Lord said, I want Saul, here's your job, I want every single one of them to take out. I don't want none of, them, nobody, none of them left alive. Could they have been that wicked? Oh yeah, they sure could have been. And there's a reason if the Lord says, the Lord is righteous, we always have to remember that. And so 
If you want to sit on the other side and say, I don't believe in a God that would ever call for the the annihilation of a a complete race, then you're wrong, (laughs) and he's right. And he has a reason that he said to Saul, take them all out. Because if they don't, he's going to come back and bite you. And that literally happened to Saul. Saul did do part of it, but uh, Samuel came into camp one day, and he finds the king of the Amalekites still alive, Agag. He hears the sheep. What do sheep do? Bah, that's what they do. He heard them bah, owing out in the back. And, uh, you know, Saul sees Samuel, and he goes, praise the Lord. You know, everything the Lord's told me to do, I've done. Oh, really? What's this king doing here still alive? Well, we're working on a little peace treaty with him. Don't worry about that. Well, what about those sheep? Well, we killed all the bad ones, but there were some really good-looking ones, so we, we kept those along, too. And um, Samuel just looked at him and said, Saul, today the kingdom is ripped from you, because Saul had it. He turned around and walked away, but as he was walking, he caught part of Saul's robe and ripped it. And Samuel looks down, and he gets the message. He says, okay, today, Saul, the kingdom's been ripped out of your hands, and it's been given to a man who's better than you. And then we have the scripture where it says to obey is better than sacrifice. That's what Samuel told Saul. Here we read that um, to do righteous and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. The Lord told Saul, Saul, it's better to obey me, not halfway, all the way. What's this king still doing alive? Samuel took a sword and took his head off. And, um, and that, was, that was it for Saul. From that moment on, the Spirit of the Lord left Saul. And uh, Samuel goes and visits Jesse. The Lord says, I, I picked a new king. He's from the house of Jesse in Bethlehem. Samuel, go. I want you to go there. And the Lord had already selected David, who is known as a man after God's own heart. And from that moment on, The anointing left Saul and was on David. But here's the interesting thing. He did not take the throne for many years later. He served Saul for quite a while. Then he ran from Saul for quite a while. So even though the anointing was there, it was still a period of time before the Lord actually put him in the place where he wanted him to be. All right. Verse 4, a haughty look and a proud heart and the plowing of the wicked are sin. The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty. But those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. And getting treasure by a lying tongue is the fleeting fantasy of those who seek death. And the violence of the wicked will destroy them because they refuse to do justice. And the way of a guilty man is perverse, but as for the pure, uh, his work is right. The Lord said, blessed are the pure pure in heart. Theirs is the kingdom of God. And um, uh, during the Beatitudes, the blessed are those that are poor in spirit. Uh, Doesn't mean, um, it means more like contrite and have um, a humble spirit rather than a proud one. Verse nine is repeated here. Usually when I see something repeated, it gets my attention. 
So I'll read both of them. It says, It's better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than to share a house with a contentious woman. And then it repeats it in verse 19. It's better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. So take your choice, either in a (laughs) corner room in an attic someplace or um, out in the wilderness rather than to be in a house with a contentious woman. Let me just give you one example. It will be our first departure here tonight. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 6. David, David's prize for taking out Goliath, one of his rewards was um, 2 Samuel chapter 6. One of his rewards is that he was given the daughter of Saul. Well, there's trouble already. Um, Didn't have to pay taxes. That was nice. And um, he was given uh, Michelle or Michael, however you want to pronounce her name, as wife. Now, the Ark of the Covenant in verse 12 was in the house of Obed-Edom. And it ended up there for quite a while, but the Lord was really blessing this man because the Ark of the Covenant was there. And so verse 12 tells us, So David went and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. Now, David, David's love for the Lord... Um, was immense. He was troubled that he lived in this beautiful home and the ark of the God of Israel was behind curtains. And um, what happens, we read, and so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that they sacrificed oxen and fatted calves. So imagine going six feet, stopping and making offerings to the Lord. And David was so excited with what was going on happening that David danced before the Lord with all of his might and David was wearing a a linen ephod. We'd say his fruit of the looms, okay? In today's terms. And David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. The movie David is out David Gear is that his name? Michael Gear, David Gear, uh, whatever it is, uh, I think he captures the part really well uh, because he's just letting loose and he doesn't care. He just doesn't care. Um, there are certain Christian songs that can really um, get me going, especially if I feel like I'm all alone. I can do a little jig myself, and uh, I was in years ago. I was in, in the church. I thought I was here all by myself, and I, I was plugged in. And uh, Dion had just gotten saved. And uh, we do this song um, um, that really kicks. Um, oh, what's it called again? It's just one of them that, that we do. Oh, Uncloudy Day, that's what it's called. Well, that, that was done by Dion, and he just makes us sing rock. And so I'm plugged in listening to Uncloudy Day. All I can think is this, our worship team has to learn this song. So I'm, you know, I am into it, totally into it. 
and not realize, here's his sister on, behind me, I don't see her, and she's just waiting for me to turn around because I'm just letting loose, and she, she can't wait to just see, ha-ha, there's Pastor Dwight, and he's losing it right in front of everybody here. And sure enough, I turned around, and, you know, my dancing stopped because I was embarrassed, not because I was dancing, I just, just I thought I was alone. <laughs> I wasn't alone. Well, um, David's wife, Michael, was embarrassed. What David was doing was expressing true joy. And he was just letting it hang, and he didn't care. He was doing this before the Lord and nobody else, and he didn't care who was watching. This was a, a place in history where the Ark of God is going to finally come to Jerusalem. Then we read, And the Ark of the Lord came into the city of David, and Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So rather than thinking, there's my husband, and he really loves God, and he's worshiping in such a way that he really doesn't care. Now, let me put this in perspective. Um, there, will, there will be those who um, will say, well, what, we should be able just to let loose on Sunday morning. If David did it there, why can't we do it here? Well, let me explain why. 1 Corinthians 14 tells us that when, that when we do worship, um, that all things are to be done decently and in order. Somebody want to give me an amen to that? What if on Sunday morning everybody here decided to say, well, David got up and down, he whirled and he went up and down, jumped over pews, and we had non-believers in here. Now, Paul's reasoning for wanting all things, it's in the context of speaking in tongues. He said, uh, if you speak in tongues in a public setting, don't do it. Because there may be non-believers that are there, and they're not going to understand what you're doing. They're going to think you're crazy. So just don't do it. So in public settings, um, all things should be done decently and in order. Um, we've had some crazy things happen here over the years. So one, somebody was telling me about some guy that did some crazy thing in his church on a Sunday morning. And I said, oh, that's nothing. We had a guy year, years ago come down this front aisle. Um, the addition wasn't put on in those days. And uh, he had an American flag. He had a homemade banjo, tambourine, harmonica mixture. And he came walking down the front aisle with this American flag with a banjo, tambourine, and harmonica all at the same time. And he's just making his way right up front. I said, go ahead, beat that one. <laughs> so, you know, the, the point is simple. You know, we got the ushers trained. If any of that kind of stuff happens, well, uh, you go and you just gently guide that person right out the front door, period. And uh, you lay hands on them in Jesus' name. <laughs> and uh, you just deal with it. Um, we were fully expecting and fully prepared because Elijah Abraham being here for people to want to disrupt things. And so we had, um, just in case people wanted to act up, uh, we had all kinds of people in all kinds of places just ready to deal with anybody that want, wanted to maybe draw some attention to themselves or um, 
and they might need to be escorted out. This last May, I was doing a prophecy conference with John Higgins and uh, an Israeli guide from Israel and myself down in um, Iowa City, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And Buck Storm was doing the worship. Um, The Israeli guide was getting ready to come up. All of a sudden, a guy breaks in the back door, pulls out a knife, and starts going after the ushers. Except um, Jeremy is, took second place two years in a, in a row in jiu-jitsu in the state of Arizona. So to say the least, his boys were well-trained. And they had this guy on the ground and subdued and uh, ready for the police to take downtown in a matter of minutes. Um, but my, my point is that... Um, um, what is my point? I got way off my point. <laughs> Doing things decently and in order, okay? But there's times when uh, if people want to act up, well, we got to be prepared, especially in these times, I think more than ever. We need to be ready to uh, address these things. Well, anyway, she was offended, and um, she was this contentious woman. She didn't love David. She didn't admire David. She, w- she despised him. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in the place of the midst of the tabernacle of David and erected it. And then David offered burnt offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord, and he's feeling generous. And he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, to everyone, a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, a cake of raisins, and so the Lord departed everyone to his house. Hey, everybody, David is blessed. And because he's blessed, he's going to bless everybody else. And then David returns to his own home. What does he return home to? To a contentious woman who would have no part of it. So David wants to bless his own household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today uncovering himself today in the eyes of all the maids of the servants of one of the based fellows, shamelessly uncovering himself. And David had had it. He, he wanted to bring home a blessing like he had blessed everybody else. But she just crossed the line. And he said to her, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all the house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play my music before the Lord, and I will even be more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservant of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. David, she had crossed the line with David, and he said, you totally misunderstand what took place today. I was praising the Lord, and you, you thought it was a debased thing, and you're not getting it at all. So that is one good example of where it's combined. Let's go back to Proverbs 20. Verse 9 and 19 say the, say the same thing. As far as David was concerned, it was better to dwell in a corner of a household than to live with, with a Michael. All right, let's continue on. The soul of the wicked. The soul of the wicked desires evil, and his neighbors find no favor in his eyes. Now when the scoffer is punished, the simple is made wise. 
But when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. The righteous God wisely considers the house of the wicked, overthrowing the wicked for their wickedness. The Lord's patient, you know, it says, when the children of Israel took the promised land and the seven nations that were there, he says they couldn't do it until their iniquity was full. It's a picture of the long-suffering of the Lord and just how patient he was. And it was a long time of being patient, but then they crossed the line. And uh, he says, I'm giving this land to you. Just make sure you don't do any of the deeds of the land, the people of this land, which they fell into. Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. Now, a gift in secret pacifies anger, but a bribe behind the back strong wrath. Let's look at verse 14. And a good example of this, there's actually a couple of them that, that we could sh- show you. Let me just have you turn to uh, Genesis 32. And remember it says, a gift in secret will pacify anger. We have a good picture of this in Genesis 32. Let's make our way back there. We finally have Jacob returning home. We'll pick it up in verse 13. He's been away from his brother Esau because he tricked him for the birthright. Mom stood up for him and told him to run away to Uncle Laban's house. We know he was there. Seven years he worked for Leah. Seven more years he worked for Rachel. And then finally, God blessed him greatly while he was there. And now Jacob is on his way home. Except his mother told him that he had to leave, otherwise his, his brother Esau would kill him. So in verse 13, so he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother. And this is what he's going to do. Esau is coming out after him. He takes 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 25 female donkeys and 10 foals. And he delivered them to the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass over before me and put some distance between the uh, successive droves. And he commanded the first one, saying, Now when my Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, say, To whom do you belong and where are you going? Who are those who are in front of you? Then you will say, Well, these are your servant Jacob's. It's a present sent to my lord Esau. And behold, he's also coming behind us. So he commanded a second and then the third. So we have a caravan of all these uh, gifts coming before Esau. And in this manner you shall speak to Esau when you, when you find him. And also say, Behold your servant Jacob, but he's coming. For he said, I will appease him with the presence. Now, what does the Proverbs teach us? Present a gift, and it'll take away a man's anger. All this man has been waiting for his whole life is to take out Jacob. And so Jacob, wisely here, is doing the Proverbs. And he's sending one caravan after another caravan of all these animals. Who do these belong to? 
Well, they belong to Jacob. And who are they for? Well, they're for you. For I see I will appease him with the presence that goes before me, and afterwards, then I'll see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So he went on before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. And then we have the famous episode where the Lord, uh, Jacob wrestles with the Lord. Let's pick it up in chapter 33, 1 through 11. Now Jacob finally, we finally have this after so many years, at least 14, eye-to-eye contact between these two brothers, and all these years Esau is just wanting to kill him. Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming with him with 400 men. So he, he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maidservants, and he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. He crossed over before them, bowed down to the ground seven times until he even got close to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the woman and children and said, Who are these with you? And he, he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And then the maidservant came near, and the children, they bowed down, and Leah came with her children, they bowed down. Afterwards, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. And then Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I meet? And he said, These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Now he had stolen the birthright and made himself the heir to the oldest. But here, again, to appease the anger of Esau, he humbles himself and calls his brother Lord. And Esau said, I have enough. My brother, keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please. If I found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face, as though I had seen the face of God, and you, have, you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. And he urged him, and he finally took it. Go back to the Proverbs, where we read, and it says, verse 14, A gift in secret pacifies anger. You know, the softening that took place. And this is just wisdom. There's wisdom on, on, um, on uh, Jacob's part uh, to deal. Of course, the, other, uh, the reason I didn't use the other one is, is Abigail and, and Adab and David and how David protected um, Abigail's husband. And um, she approached him, and David was ready to take this guy's head off. But Abigail comes out, same thing, with, with all these gifts and loaves and raisins and breads and, and takes care of David and says, please, my husband's an idiot. He, he didn't know what he was doing. Just please let it be on my shoulders. And David said, it's a good thing that you came out because by tomorrow morning there would have been not one male left in his household. I would have taken them all out. David already had his sword strapped on. But Abigail was able to pacify and turn away that anger. All right, verse 15. We'll take this through. It is joy for the just to do justice, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. Jesus simply said, it's more blessed to give than receive. And it's just a fact. You just get 
a blessing when, when you see, when you give somebody something. A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the congregation of the dead. And he who loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. The wicked shall be a ransom for the righteous and the unfaithful for the upright. And then, of course, we just read this earlier, it's better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. There is a desirable treasure, an oil in the dwelling of the, of the wise, but a foolish man squanders it. And he who follows righteousness and mercy finds life, righteousness, and honor. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the trusted stronghold. When I read this, I, I can't help but think <clears throat> of uh, scaling the, the walls of a city. A wise man can do that and, it can, and bring down the stronghold. The, probably the greatest city that ever was as far as being fortified, of course, would have been Babylon. 300-foot walls, 450-foot towers, you could ride four abreast chariots on it. There's no way you were getting in there. They were so confident that the night that Babylon fell, there was somebody who was wiser than the builder of the walls of Babylon. The Medes and the Persians, that's the night that they were mocking God by drinking out of the golden vessels. Hand of the Lord comes out and begins just to write in the wall in the middle of this party. Manny, Manny, tinkle you farson. And nobody could understand what it was except Daniel. He says, I'll tell you what it means. Says Belshazzar, you've been weighed in the balances. You've been found wanting. And uh, your kingdom has been divided between the Medes and the Persians. And you're going down tonight. And while he was speaking, what he didn't know was outside, a branch of the Euphrates rivers went right through the middle of Babylon. And what they did is, here's where the wisdom comes in. Wise men can scale and bring down even the mightiest of buildings. We would say there wasn't a shot fired because they simply diverted part of the Euphrates back into the original stream. It lowered the water, and they just walked right in. And before anybody knew it was happening, Babylon was taken. That's the night that he died, just like the Lord said. The proverb said, a wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the trusted, the Medes and the Persians. And that's how Babylon fell in one single night. Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from trouble. That's just saying some people talk too much. (laughs) They're talking all the time. Um, But again, thinking before it comes out here, and we're all guilty of saying something and right as soon as you say it you go oh, well I wish I would not have said that and it's already too late it's out there and how do you get them back in you can't they're out there so thinking it through before it comes through is wisdom is what the scriptures are saying here guarding your mouth and tongue a proud and a haughty man a scoffer is his name he acts with arrogant pride uh, the desire of the slothful kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. The Proverbs speak a lot about the importance of um, work, the integrity that goes along with it. 
not being lazy. And David is trying to instill this work ethic into his son. It's basically what he's doing here. Um, He covets greedily all day long, but the righteous gives and does not spare. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it in with wicked intent? Now verses 28 and 29, we'll get a little uh, sidetracked here on. It says, a false witness will perish. In other words, somebody who is saying things that are simply not true, uh, his days are numbered, but the man who hears him will speak endlessly. A false witness, basically somebody who is a, a liar and would, um, uh, would speak falsely against someone to benefit themselves. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26 and um, the false witnesses that came against Jesus when he was, when he was betrayed. We'll pick it up in verse 57 of Matthew 26. The setting is the trial That was set up by Caiaphas. So verse 57, And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Peter followed them at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with his servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought, and here it is, false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They were looking for a reason. Is anybody willing to sell themselves out so that we can kill Jesus of Nazareth? They were looking for false testimonies, but found none. Jesus even said it at one time when they wanted to kill him, for which, which one of my good deeds do you want to kill me for? Which, which one of the good things? Because the Bible says the, all the Lord ever did was going around doing good. He only did good. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at least two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. And the high priest rose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And now this is Isaiah 53 being fulfilled where it said he stood before his, the shears like a lamb, yet he was silent. He held his peace. And here's a tough thing to do. When you're being falsely accused or there's false witnesses that rise against you, what's the first human instinct that you have? You want to defend yourself. That ain't true. That ain't right. And so... Where faith kicks in, even though you can prove it otherwise, the Bible says, vengeance is mine. I'll take care of it. What are you going to do? Take it into your own hands? Or it's really a sign of faith that you really believe that in the Lord's time, uh, he'll take care of it. I think of David and Saul again. You know, David is the rightful king. And uh, yet, he could have taken Saul out. I mean, he came into the very cave where he was hiding, cut off a piece of his robe. All the counselors that were counseling David said, obviously this is the Lord David. What are the chances? 
the Lord has delivered your enemy right to you, here to kill him. He says, oh no, vengeance is the Lord. And as far as I'm concerned, that's the Lord's anointed. I'm not touching him with a 10-foot pole. If God wants him dead, that'll be the Lord's timing. Well, several more years would, would pass before he died on the mountains of Gilboa. And David finally, after a long time, had to wait on the Lord to bring it to pass. Here, the Lord kept silent because it was foretold in Isaiah 53. And the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. All right, now he's been commanded in the name of the God of Israel, so Jesus said, okay, it's just as you said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter you will uh, see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming of the clouds of heaven. Wow. Did he believe it? Nope. That was all the blasphemy that he needed to hear. Here he was, the Messiah of Israel. In Zechariah, there's going to come a day in Israel's history when all of Israel, it says, is going to mourn as one mourns for an only son that's just been lost. And um, it's a reference here when they realize that they were the ones that actually crucified Jesus Christ. In the same chapter, the question arises from the Jewish people, where did you get those wounds? Here and here. And he says, oh, I got those those wounds in the house of my friends. And that's how Jesus looked at Israel, Israel, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to gather you unto myself, but you would not. That's free will. Big issue today, and one of the things that came up during our conference was the issue of Calvinism. And do you have a free will or not? Are you predestined only to, to go to heaven? There's nothing you can do about it. And has God actually predestined some to hell? Well, Dave, we mentioned Dave Hutt's book. What kind of love is that? It isn't. But here's a perfect scripture that just just knocks it out of the water. I, I wanted you. I wanted to gather you like a mother hen gathers chicks, but you would not exercise your free will. You could have, but you chose not to. But many did. Many that listened to the Lord, of course, followed him. These guys were just threatened. When you read John 5, one of the reasons that they wanted to kill him It says, because they would lose their position and their place. Everybody now was following Jesus, and they were um, uh, going down in the polls, so to speak, as the popularity was for this Jesus of Nazareth, and they weren't getting the respect that they so much sought after. All right, so what what does the Proverbs say? Um, Verse 28 and 29, a false witness will perish. All those false witnesses... They're dead, and if they died in their sins, they're in hell. If they rejected their Messiah, and um, that's a classic example of uh, a false witness. A wicked man hardens his face, but as for the upright, he establishes his way. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. And the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is from the Lord. Chapter 22, a good name is chosen rather than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. A good name. 
when people think of you, do you have a good name? And how does it resonate? Do they know that you're a Christian? And can they tell by your actions? Um, let's turn to Second um, Samuel chapter 23. When David did go on the run from Saul, it tells us that everybody who was in debt, everybody who was in distress, became followers of David, about 400, four to 600. They were ragtags. They had nothing going for them. They were in debt, they were in distress, but they were living with a guy who probably played his harp to the Lord on a daily basis and followed him into many a battle. David just had, he was unique in that he was a man's man. He was an unbelievably gifted musician and he had a heart for God. He, had, he was the full package. And these ragtag people that started about four or 600, after years of being with David, they're no longer known. Their reputation is not one of being in distress and in debt, but rather they became David's mighty men. When you look at chapter 23, beginning with verse eight, and ending with verse 38, 39, you'll find that there's 37 in all. Notice that the last one of David's mighty men was Uriah the Hittite. Interesting. He was was one of David's mighty men. Well, they didn't start out with such a good name, but after hanging out with David, their whole reputation changed and that they themselves became a warrior like their leader. Now, the application is obvious. The more time that we spend with the Lord, many of us came to the Lord in distress, in, in, messed up, not knowing what's going on, and that's the condition that he found us in. Our name, our reputation, not very good. Certainly mine wasn't. And then you start walking with the Lord, and you're spending time with him, and you're learning, as David did, how to worship, uh, you're w- learning how to fight spiritual warfare. You're learning, you're learning how to be used to affect other people's lives for good for the kingdom. And the Lord begins to work. And from being in debt and distress, all of a sudden, you have a reputation for actually doing good works in the name of the Lord. And you actually become known for it. So I'm just going to read three of these guys. These were the top three. There were 37. But the top three, the first guy's name is Adino. Well, his reputation was he got in a fight with 800 guys at the same time and won all, all the battles. Now, that's one movie I'd like to see. One against 800. He was one of David's mighty men, and that's what we read here. Uh, uh, verse 8, he was a captain um, because he had killed 800 men at one time, Adino. And then after him is Eleazar the son of Dodo. I don't know if I want to be called the son of Dodo, but nonetheless, this guy was. And um, he was one of the three mighty men of David when they defiled the Philistines uh, who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel had retreated. So everybody takes off except this guy. Israel takes off. The Philistines are coming, but he stands his ground. And he arose and he attacked the Philistines and his hand was weary and his hand got stuck to his sword, the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned only for the plunder. So imagine your whole battalion, high 
tailing it and taking off. And, uh, the, you know, he had the attitude of Jonathan. He said the Lord could deliver with one or he can deliver with many. One in God is always majority. As far as this guy's concerned, where do you suppose he learned that from? David. He was one of these guys that was in distress and in debt, messed up. And now he knows that this is an impossible fight. But he's thinking, look, if David can do it, I can do it. Jesus said, greater works than these will you do. What? Than me. That's a pretty big statement. But if Jesus said it, obviously there's believers out there today that are doing um, um, effective work for the kingdom of heaven. Jesus had three years. Some people, let's pick Billy Graham, you know. He's got, he's still in his 90s and is responsible for my salvation. And how many untold millions of others? Uh, that's more fruit, more people that, that uh, the Lord was able to minister to. I don't know if that's the context that it was, it was meant to be in, but the last one, his name is Shemaiah. Uh, and, and this guy, same deal. Uh, he was um, with a troop when there was a piece of ground. Wyatt tells us it was full of lentils, I don't know. But the people fled from the Philistines, but he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, killed the Philistines, and brought about a great victory. Just one guy having enough faith to say, if David could do it, I can do it. Go to the book of Ecclesiastes, which is after the book of Proverbs, and turn to chapter 7. And remember, our verse here is, in 22, is a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Here are these three guys, Adino, Eliezer, and Shammah. Uh, nobody's. But all of a sudden they have a name that's in the word of God that's going to be there forever and ever and ever. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1, it says, A good name is better than precious ointment. In the day of death, better than a day of one's birth. I don't do a funeral without reading these verses. And I, don't, I won't go here and read these verses until I'm fully established that Solomon is the wisest man who ever lived. Because we don't think, uh, my sister called me last night, left a message on my phone. And um, her daughter, my niece, is going into labor. And um, she's as excited as a grandma can be because my grandbaby's coming. And she says, put it on a prayer chain because we don't know if we have to do a C-section or not, but oh, you know, all the bubbly, bubbly, I could just, was just pouring over on the phone. The day of one's death is better than a day of one's birth. Well, we were all there when, when mom died. And um, human reaction is, ooh, there were tears. They're mixed emotions. We sorrow, but not like those who have no hope. So, you know, Doval family right now is all excited for my little sister because she's going to be a grandma tomorrow. And uh, that's rejoicing. But we were, we were there when mom died too. And uh, yet Solomon's saying, look, here's the truth of the matter. The day, the day of the death is better than the day of one's birth. What? Yeah, you know why? Mom knew and loved Jesus. And she had stage four breast cancer and she was in pain and she was suffering. And... Um, um, we just have people in the fellowship that are in that place right now. 
and I was uh, up at the hospital visiting one of the persons. I tell you, but I, I, I don't want to say without talking to husband about making it public, but, um, you know, she's in hospice now, and she'll be going home to be with the Lord. But my Bible says that's better than the day she was born. Why? Well, it's better to go to a funeral, verse 2, than to the house of feasting. I like to read it as, it's better to go to a funeral than to a Packer game. And you go, what? That makes no sense at all. Why would it be better? Why? Because the living will take it to heart. They'll think about it. You're not going to think about, am I going to heaven or hell at a Packer game? You usually don't. But when you're at a funeral, here's somebody that you love. Well, now what? That, that could happen to me someday. You see, the living are taking it to heart. When a person dies, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Someone want to say amen to that? What does that mean? That means you have a brand new body all of a sudden. No more suffering, no more pain, no more sorrow. Face to face with Jesus, you're telling me that's not better? Paul got to see it. And he's, let me, let me tell you, uh, I, I've seen it. And I, I, the Lord had to put an enemy from, uh, from Satan to buffet me lest I get so excited and puffed up about it and start writing books about it or something. What I saw in heaven. And, um, okay, one second, one glance at heaven. And like the song says, the things of this world, <laughs> you, could, you, don't, you do not want to come back. Okay, I'll t- end with a Chuck story. I was sure I would get through chapter 22. But I did get through verse one. So give me some credit for that. Chuck went to be with the Lord four days after my mom. So it was a one-two punch for me personally. Um, my mother, whom I loved, and my beloved pastor, both going to heaven. But Chuck always t- told his story tongue-in-cheek that if he, ever, if he ever died of a heart attack or whatever, and some doctor put the paddles on him and brought him back to life, he, Chuck said, he better not be an arm's distance of me because I'll take that guy out. <laughs> Chuck was like Paul. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? And knowing, and this is what this preparation and studying the Bible is all about, getting to the place where you don't fear death, you look forward to it. And that um, we're human, and so we have this tendency to try to keep things going. But come on, either we believe this book or we don't. Either we're instantly changed and we have this new body that, that's never going to suffer again. Uh, Bruce was singing that song, When the Veil is Ripped Away, and I finally get to see you face to face. You see, if the number one thing you want in this world is to be next to your Lord, that's going to be granted And I hope that's your heart's desire, more than anything else. As we study uh, the Psalms, and it says it's it's better to to be with the Lord than to be the day of your very first birthday. That's better, because that means you're, you're through with this world that is full of trials and temptations and all that goes with it. And it doesn't get any better. But the good news is, Elijah's, both these guys on Saturday morning. Man, what a Sunday morning. David Hawking, I didn't think that could be topped. And then Elijah gets up and does just as good, if not better. And, um, and just having it laid out is just, uh, was just a blessing because these guys are hearts in, in the right place. David asked me to pray for him. He had to go home to his wife, who won't be able to walk for the next year. She's got a rare blood disease. 
And um, she's the longest living person in the world with this disease. They got to take her blood out of her body on a regular basis and give her all new blood because of this disease. Nobody's lived longer than Carol, David Hawking's wife. And he said, Dwight, would you would you have your fellowship pray for me? Um, my my uh, lovely bride, Carol, uh, said, David, I don't know if I can do this without you. They have family that's there all the time. And he says, I'm really struggling with my speaking engagements. My calendar's full. But he said, I need you to pray for me because uh, I need to be sensitive to what, what's happening now at home. So pray for David. Um, his Bible study on Matthew 24 was so deep and so profound, of with, especially with the Greek <laughs> study with who will be taken and who will be left behind uh, and the nouns there. That one you want, might want to listen to a couple times. Amen? I want five minutes past my five minutes past time. Let's stand up and we'll pray. <laughs> Lord, thank you for your word tonight and the areas that we're able to touch on. And um, help us um, be in no hurry, Lord, in rushing through all the rich treasures that we find here in your word. So I pray you just give us this wisdom. I pray that we would seek it more than we would seek, as it says here, find gold or the things of this world. But Lord, help us, as your word says in Colossians 3, 1, to seek those things that are above where you are, if we've been born again. And so we're challenged once again by your word to be more like you. And we may have come to you all messed up in distress and debt and whatever. Lord, turn us as we hang out with you and fellowship with you and one another, that we get transformed and have that good name of being a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ. It's in your name I pray. Amen.